Today on episode number 335, Maze Imad joins me to talk about trauma-informed teaching and learning. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest, Mays Ahmad, is a neuroscientist and professor of patho physiology, and biomedical ethics at Pima Community College, the founding coordinator of the Teaching and Learning Center, and a Gardner Institute fellow. Dr. Imad's current research focuses on stress, self-awareness, advocacy, and classroom community, and how these relate to cognition, metacognition, and ultimately student learning and success. Through her teaching and research, She seeks to provide her students with transformative opportunities that are grounded in the aesthetics of learning, truth-seeking, and self-realization. Mays, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I have really enjoyed getting to learn more about your research and about your work on trauma-informed teaching. Let's begin by having you share a little bit about how you first got interested in this type of pedagogy. Thank you. So I teach a variety of science courses. And a lot of times when I start the semester, I talk with students about the science of learning and how we could regulate our learning. So I spend a lot of times trying to help students become captains of their own learning journey, if you will. Over the years, I noticed that sometimes students would take, would be taken an exam and they would leave the exam and would leave pages empty. And eventually I did a focus group where I asked the students, what's going on? Because sometimes I would run after them and say, just write anything. I know you know the material. I know. So I did a focus group. I asked students what's going on. And it was a student that said to me, that they freeze. Sometimes they see something and they freeze and there's just nothing could break that. And it was that moment that I had an aha moment that took me back to graduate school, my own journey as a student. And I remember in graduate school, this was during the invasion of Iraq, where my family's there. And I remember studying and being in study groups and so on and going to take the exams and just having that same reaction. And at the time when I was a student, I, I, I would often think, maybe I just became stupid. Maybe I'm not cut off by this. Maybe, maybe. And it would take me all those years and for my students to point out to me that, no, this was a traumatic reaction. And so I began to work with the students on the importance of recognizing when we have a reaction that blocks our ability to engage, to learn, to reproduce what we've learned. So that in a nutshell, how 
I became interested in it. It was my own journey, but really amplified by students' experiences and students' guidance to help direct me in this direction. What I find so touching about your story is that and this is not the happy part. <laughs> you experience, you experience this trauma and then all this time goes by. Presumably you're gaining a lot cognitively and perhaps gaining some confidence in your own academic abilities after that point, but it comes mm-hmm. full circle around to you becoming the student of students that they they could teach you something like that that you were unable to see with your own eyes is really a beautiful touching thing. Absolutely. It's been healing. I remember the first time I had that aha moment and how I really, I mean, I sat down and I reflected on how many times in graduate school I thought I need to drop out. I, I've, maybe I became stupid and, and how much I wish someone has said to me, no, you're experiencing traumatic stress and trauma Because when we see that the deficit is not me, there is an external, there are variables that are impacting me, my physiology is acting up, we can have compassion for ourselves. And so, yeah, I I always say that the students working with my students have been healing and very empowering. Let's spend a few minutes now looking at two different types of trauma. Let's first look at the if there are any, the common types of trauma that our students may have experienced that might trigger a similar experience as you had. And then let's then talk about the dynamic of the COVID pandemic, because that really, to me and my what I'm learning so far is that rather than it being an individual trauma is also it, it both is, but it also is a collective trauma. Could we start with just some of the patterns that we might see of traumas our students that we would be teaching might have experienced and yeah so that's a great question if we are to be honest with ourselves in higher education we would know that our students were experiencing trauma and chronic stress before the pandemic and we know that trauma can be physical getting into a car accident can be traumatic witnessing someone getting into a car accident can be traumatic but so is experiencing poverty and oppression and uncertainty. So DACA students and all of the uncertainty and the marginalization and just this agony were undoubtedly experiencing traumatic stress, but also their friends. Because when I see that my friend is experiencing oppression and and I am unable to help out, that, that can also be Um, secondary or vicarious trauma. So we know, and actually research from, for example, Nadine Berkey, who is the Surgeon General of California, who wrote The Deepest Well, and she did research, she and and others done research on the adverse childhood effects. We know that a lot of our students were coming to us carrying the impact of, of adverse childhood effects. But we also know that there is there is rampant loneliness and anxiety and, and there is this obsession with perfectionism. And so so the students were definitely experiencing, let's say, 
and above average stress. And when that stress is day in and day out, whether it's coming from socioeconomic factors or racial inequality, the day in and the day out, the chronicity of it becomes really overwhelming on our brains and our overall well-being. Now, that's before the pandemic. The pandemic has introduced another set of challenges. And a lot of traumatologists, clinicians have been saying that all the ingredients that would cause somebody to experience the traumatic event are there. And so we are social creatures. When I see somebody at the store, I smile and I want to, you know, chat with them. And now what has happened is we have become just reflexively aversive to being close to each other. There's also the uncertainty of what's going to happen, what's going to happen in terms of income, in terms of um, health. And so we've been, without any uh, forewarning, we've been confronting the vulnerability, our vulnerabilities, our mortality. And we're doing a lot of this in vacuum. So yes, we're experiencing this collectively, but also there is a social isolation. And that is on top of what was already there for a lot of our students and a lot of our colleagues. And so it's definitely challenging. So we have looked at some of the types of traumatic experiences our students may have, and then the ways in which COVID has compounded those things. I know we have more to explore in terms of trauma-informed pedagogy, but let's begin with a definition. (laughs) What can you tell us about trauma-informed pedagogy as a way of thinking about our teaching and a way of approaching it? So in, in its simplest definition, basically it is a lens. I, the teacher, or as a faculty developer, I view my colleagues, they come to me with a background, with experiences, and those experiences are going to impact how they interact with the materials, with their classmates, with the classroom, their ability to engage, to learn, to thrive, their overall well-being. And so I recognize that, and I'm able to recognize it, when they are triggered, when they, when they feel disengaged. And I also am able to recognize it in myself. We can't give what we don't have, which is why part of this trauma-informed lens is the, the well-being of the teacher as well. So I recognize it in myself. I recognize it in the students. But I don't stop at recognition. At the heart of trauma, experiencing trauma is is lack of safety, lack of agency, lack of feeling connected. And so I'm going to be intentional as a teacher to help students feel safe beyond the physical safety, beyond the emotional safety, safety holistically. And I'm also going to help cultivate connection between me and the students, among the students. And I'm also going to help the students feel empowered, give them a voice and a choice. Those things ultimately will not only help the students feel engaged and learn, but also it can lead to recovery. And so I often talk about, it's a concept that I've been working on, the learning sanctuary, where the classroom, whether virtual or physical, 
and be a place where the students come in and learn to cultivate the world within, but also connect with the world without. And it is through that we can begin to grow and heal. I was thinking back to the closest thing I think I've probably had to trauma, and that was that we had a very challenging time having children. So there were many years of lots of medical adventures. And Mm -hmm. at the time, I wouldn't have described myself that way. And I would have thought that this was just normal. This is not, this, this is just a lot of doctor's visits, but it's very normal. Then every year we would go back to the doctor's office. We still do now. They have Halloween little get-togethers. They call them the miracle babies. And the kids all come dressed up in Halloween costumes. It's adorable. (laughs) But I would give a hug to the doctor and I would smell the smell of his disinfectant on his coat. And I, and my heart rate would instantly elevate and just the sign that I go, oh, okay, because it's not, I'm not literally afraid of him. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, it's, but yeah. your brain, you know, doesn't work. It doesn't necessarily work that way. The reason I bring that up is not to share a needless personal story, but to try, you know, the best that I can to attempt to have greater empathy for students, you know, to try to com- think about what it would be like to have had that across you know my entire life when you mention about experiencing poverty mm-hmm. experiencing racism etc and trying to trying to really connect with what that might be the other thing that as you were sharing i was thinking about i know we exchanged a little bit about this over email i i, I was joking i don't know if you got my joke over email sometimes it doesn't land but you said that these can sometimes be controversial things yeah, yeah, that, that we yeah. need to, and there's two things I'd love to bring up and then hear your response to. I certainly won't be in support of either of these things, but the idea that, you know, the trigger warnings that we might give to students, mm-hmm. for example, a student has been raped, perhaps give them a warning before you assign reading that depicts a rape scene, for example, just one of many. So there, there's that part of it. And then there's this, that they're going to become too soft, you know, that they, mm. that they just won't have the tenacity or the grit, you know, to keep going. Yeah. So again, I'm not an advocate for either of those things. But I wonder, though, if you would share just a bit on your reflections and response to people who are concerned about either one of those things. Absolutely. So first, I want to I want to thank you for sharing this story. And I want to acknowledge that we can heal from trauma. I mean, I talk to the students about how trauma affects the brain and our body and our ability to learn, but the brain is also plastic and resilient and brilliant. And healing from trauma begins with the awareness. And so I think it's wonderful that you notice that your heart rate goes up and and then you're like, what's going on? And it's this what's going on without judgment that can help us understand ourselves. And why our body is scared so we could negotiate with the brain to calm the body down. So thank you for, for sharing that. Oh, and thank you for that. That's, I really appreciate that. I'm a big believer in naming things. Yeah. And exactly what you said, you name it and you, how do you name it without that judgment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I talk about, let's take a backward design approach to this. I, the teacher, my goal is to help the students learn and apply the materials so they could go on and thrive in society and become contributing citizens and and so on. So I am interested in what is the best 
the most effective, humane, fun way to get to that, to get to my goal, to engage the students, to help them feel empowered and liberated and, and so on. Knowing what we know about the brain, knowing that we are not just thinking machines, but we're feeling machines capable of thinking, as Antonio Damasio says, we can't separate our feelings from our thoughts. And we also know that we process information at an emotional level before we process it at a rational level. So if I'm sitting in a classroom and, and somebody presents something that triggers me and I don't have the tools to negotiate with my brain because I just haven't learned, that experience can trigger me and it can hijack my ability to engage with the material. So then I, as a teacher, what have I accomplished? Nothing, right? It's not about they being students. It's not about rigor. It's not about content. It's about being strategic. How can I engage them so they can engage with the materials? And so it's giving them the opportunity to pause and prepare for what's to come. Let's say if it's something that's going to be triggered. To your second question, that this trauma-informed pedagogy is going to coddle them, it's going to prevent them from having grit. On the contrary, it's actually going to help them empower the students to learn about the biology of learning so they could regulate their emotional response, so they could own their experience. So I go back to, you know, I often say I'm I'm subject number one. I go back to my experience as a graduate student and how often my visceral reaction was, I think I became stupid. And then I look at my students and how often they say, I'm sorry, I can't focus. I'm sorry. I, and it's this self-blame, internalizing, it's a deficit model, where in reality, when you say to the students or yourself that, my brain is scared. My body is scared. And that's not going to mean that, okay, take the day off, but it's like, what can we do about it, right? A lot of our students are, a lot of my students, overwhelmingly, they are earnest. They work hard. They don't want a free ride or no deadlines or, on the contrary, when I say, you know, do you want an extension? They're afraid that they're going to fall behind. And so this trauma-informed pedagogy is really, it's a way to help the students regulate their emotions so they can engage with difficult concepts and learn and become complex problem solvers. Tell us a little bit about that two things are, are not mutually exclusive, this idea, and you sort of were already starting to introduce mm -hmm. this, but we can both have a quality education while also utilizing this approach. Would you speak a little bit more about, about? Yes. So when I know myself and when I know what triggers me and when I have that self-awareness, I can then learn to work with that so I could focus on the materials, right? So that's me as a student. But let's talk about me as the teacher. I teach, for example, pathophysiology, and there is a lot to cover. 
the students are going to go become nurses and doctors. And so for me, if I have 15 chapters to cover, I can't say, well, I'm just going to cover five of them, right? But I have to negotiate with and really interrogate what does it mean to cover 15 chapters for the students to memorize and regurgitate or for the students to perhaps go in depth with five chapters with me walking them, walking with them, so they could learn how to, on their own, work through the other 10 chapters, right? So I think with respect to this quality education vis-a-vis trauma-informed pedagogy, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the, the rigor, the content, assessment, And I often think about where is this notion of rigor comes from, right? Who dictates what what is rigorous and what is not? And the group of people who dictate it, where is that coming from? We haven't really interrogated it in a way that that tells us that, oh, it's evidence-based. There is a longitudinal study that shows the quality of life improves if you adapt this type of rigor. Also, assessment. Are we assessing so we could give a numerical number so we could weed out? Or are we assessing so we could incentivize students to learn the material, to grab the challenge so they could learn it? So I'll give you an example. And I've been using this trauma-informed lens before the pandemic. But I recognize that failing can be jarring. It's actually, there's there's a form of loss. I, the student, sit and I study and I spend a lot of time, and then I take the exam, and I fail. And there is this this experience of loss and even grief. And then there is no closure, oftentimes. And so what I've done in my classes is, if you want to learn it, still, let's learn it. And then you could retake a different form of an exam, or you could... And so what happens, or what, what has happened over the years, is I've seen students get an 88 on an exam and come to me and say, I, that, that 12 points, I want to get that. Not because they're competitive or they're perfectionists, but they want to learn what they missed. That's not coddling the students. That's an approach that's um, empowering the students to say, no, I'm up to the challenge. 88 is great, but I want to learn what I missed, right? So when this it's, it's empowering the students, it is taken away, it's helping them deal with perhaps the loss or the grief of what happened if they fail, and it focuses on learning. It's really, it's, it's learning-centered. And so are we compromising the rigor? Not, not really, because the focus is still on the material and on the students learning it in a deep and meaningful way. Oh, I so appreciate you saying that. I'm reminded of a young woman who stayed. I, I keep joking. I have my main class via web conference. And then I have what I'm, I've am i started to jokingly call the after party. <laughs> <laughs> and essentially what I started to do is sort of be an audio book for them if they'd like to stay around. And I share a few stories and I also shorten some of the parts I think are less important for them. And anyway, she stayed after the after party and wanted to chat with me. And essentially, she wanted to share that she had not finished an assignment on time. I have not been particularly strict about deadlines. So the, 
I was sort of interested in where this conversation was going to go. So she said, you know, I, I was, I saw the clock and I, I was surprised and, you know, embarrassed that I had forgotten about it. And she had something else that had happened or whatever. And then she said, and I could have done it. I could have just rushed and I could have just not done a good job, but done good enough that I know it would have met your expectations. I'm doing sort of a version of Mm-hmm. of specifications grading, I think is probably the closest, although I don't tell them that's what it's called, but that, you know, here's, here's the bar, no surprises. And so there's nothing, you know, she knew she could have checked my boxes, but she said, yeah. I just really wanted to learn from it. Cause they're all assignments where they're putting together tools that are around a book called getting things done. So they're figuring mm-hmm. out how to, in this particular case, it was for setting up a workspace. It could even be a workspace in transit that was a backpack, for example, but just a space that would help them be able to be at their best in an environment that they created for themselves. And so she could have, you know, done it in 10 minutes before it was due, but she says, I really wanted to do that. I really, and so that's exactly what you're talking about, where it's not about the grade. She knew she could have gotten the grade, but she actually wanted to create that for herself and then also have the learning, which is just, I mean, so rewarding. It's so, a so beautiful rewarding. story. It is so, I mean, don't we want our students to, this is an example of a student that is falling in love with learning mm-hmm. and learning more and going deeper. Don't we want our students who are the future of our humanity to have that that, I mean, you're telling me the story and I just feel my heart just expand that there is that you cultivate this environment where a student feels empowered to make the decision that I want to go deeper. Good enough is not what I'm after. Yeah. yeah. And I can't say that I accomplish that as often as I would like to, but boy, is that an exhilarating feeling when it actually happens, you know, that they do want to go deeper. And I also don't want to necessarily put that entirely on me. I'm always working at becoming better. I love uh, Stephen Brookfield talks about becoming, and he's been at this, he's written 30 books about teaching, and he still is becoming. Mm. And I love that as a frame. So Mm. we do the best that we can And then we also recognize just the situation and how much students could potentially in another time in their lives, at a time in our lives, really Mm -hmm. be able to go that deeper. And right now, it just isn't possible for them. So it doesn't mean we necessarily have to have failed as a teacher when that doesn't get achieved. It's all kind of this collective thing. If we can even just get them excited about learning in another class, you know, it it doesn't have to necessarily be that the world wraps around us. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a student who was a single mom and she was working two jobs, one in the evening and one actually at the, at the school. And she had almost a perfect attendance, but she would sleep in the class, probably catching up on her sleep. And she would email me and ask questions about the assignment. And she was not, she was not going to pass. I will never forget an email I received from her. And she, she said, I know it's not me. I know I am capable, but the time is not right. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I was, and I am so proud of her for recognizing that it's not a deficit that she has, that the circumstances right now, and this pivot in, I know I can do it. The time is not right, is really powerful. It's an internal shift 
about I am capable versus, you know, this deficit self-image. I wish I could go back to, I don't, I don't often have students fall asleep in classes. I think I've learned some approaches to prevent a little bit of that, but oh gosh, 12 or so years ago, I didn't have the greatest reaction to a young man falling asleep in my class. Mm -hmm. And I asked him to leave and it was rather Mm -hmm. rude and embarrassing for him. Mm -hmm. I don't love that memory. What the only part I can take out of it is to talk about it because I think we can learn from our own failures and also from other people's failures. So anyone hearing me tell that story that may have had similar feelings, but just hasn't had it happen yet. Not a, not a good choice for a number of reasons, but it's like so many things, whether it's academic integrity, whether it's falling asleep in class, anytime we make that about us, you fell asleep in my class, you know, you cheated on me, you know, and and I look at the failures that I've had over the years, they're almost all centered on not being able to get out of my own context Mm -hmm. and understand others' context. It really comes down to that almost every time. And, you know, I just, wow, if we can, I, I love where I am today. I love that I can hear you tell that story and instantly go, oh my gosh, she must have been so tired, you know, that she doesn't have to become a rude person in this story. And you don't have it just that you that it's so easy for me to enter into that space. But then I also, of course, want to ask myself, and we should be asking each other, you know, what I must still be missing some of it. So it's that idea of becoming, where are we missing it that we aren't able to see how tired our students must be, of course, in, in another another context. So Yeah. So let's look at what trauma-informed teaching is not. We've looked at what it is. Could you share Mm -hmm. a bit about what it is not? Yes, of course. So it is not, I think there is this notion that I need to be a therapist, a psychologist, that I am going to be a healer. And that is not what trauma-informed pedagogy is. You don't need to be a You don't need to be a certified psychologist or a psychiatrist. You just need to be in tune with the context of the students we are inviting into our classroom and also to ensure their safety, their connection, their sense of belonging, their self-empowerment. And also trauma-informed pedagogy is not about telling the student, for example, you can do it. You're resilient, pick up yourself by your bootstraps, you got the grit, etc. Because in that case, even though I have good intentions and I, you know, want to help the students and encourage them and, and, and so on, I'm also perhaps putting pressure on them. How do I know they can do it? And so that inadvertently will take away their choice and put pressure on them, could put pressure on them. And so There are examples of what to do and what not to do when you're using a trauma-informed lens. But And and one of them is this, as I said, that the teacher has to also be in tune with her or or his or or their own trauma and, and what triggers them. And so it's really important that I, when I use this trauma-informed lens, that I also ensure that I don't become that I don't carry the burden. I am not solving the problem, right? The problems are sometimes too, dif- too, too difficult to solve. 
if somebody is getting evicted from their home, I can't solve it. So it's important to also protect my own heart that I don't, how should I say, take on the emotions of, of the student. And in protecting my own heart, I can continue to give. I can continue to, to help the students. Oh, that's so important. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I would love to hear you reflect some on some intersections, the intersection between equity, justice, and trauma-informed pedagogy. Yeah, that is a great question, Bonnie. You know, when, when we use this trauma-informed pedagogy, and I'm also going to, to challenge that we think about trauma-informed education. So it's not just in the classroom. It is a school approach. It's an institution approach. When done correctly, and when I say correctly, I mean not in a way that we check a box. We did this. Let's go on to the next shiny object. It is about restoring justice at the individual and at the community level. When a student has experienced trauma and they come to our spaces and we help them reclaim, for example, their sense of self or safety or connection, it is about starting that healing process. So with respect to what does this have to do with justice and equity, we know we have overwhelming data that shows us the impact of microaggression, racism, poverty on the development of, of, of the individuals. And so a lot of times students come to us carrying all of that with them. And I also want to say that we have data and research that shows the impact of trauma not just on individual, not just on generation, but also intergenerational. And so if I, the educator, if I am interested in diversity, equity, and inclusion, I can't separate that from trauma-informed education. Because for a student to thrive, we need to approach education holistically. It is not possible for us to compartmentalize in a way where I leave everything behind and I come to the classroom and I just focus on that. And so if we want the students to integrate what we teach them in the classroom and with the real world, we also ought to keep in mind that they are coming with their world, with their background and their context. And so I see a direct connection between trauma-informed education and justice and equity. Well, I feel like I haven't timed my recommendations quite as well as I am today. With I just pulled it up and went, wow, it's like I planned it this way, but I didn't. So oh, wow. okay. <laughs> this is the time in the show where we each get to get to our recommendations. And a lot of times I put them in in advance, you know, and so I just pulled it up and boy, does this fit. You're going to like this one, I think. You're not going to like it. You're going to mm. you're going to think it is a very good example of all of the things that you've brought up for us mm. today. So this is a tweet from someone named Hannah, and she tweets, my mom passed away last weekend. Mm. I emailed my professors to ask for a 24-hour extension. Professor 1 only gave me 12 hours. Professor 2 told me to do the assignments for the week when I could and asked if I wanted to share my favorite memories of her instead. Be like Professor 2. 
Yeah, I mean, I shared the story about the students sleeping in my class. So I certainly have failures and have um, moments I'm not proud of. But my goodness gracious, if you're Student emails to say mom passed away assignments is the last thing that we should be thinking about in that particular situation. So be like professor too. And on, yeah. And not even mom. If a student emails and says, my bird passed away, there's a relationship there. And let's assume that they're experiencing, let's believe that the loss that they are experiencing has prevented them from doing the assignment. Let's honor the laws and let's honor the relationship. Yeah. The next one is a little bit on a much lighter note. I want to thank Bonnie Powers, who emailed me. By the time you hear this show, it will have been quite some time ago, but I've recommended a television show called Shit's Creek before. Mm. And so I also then recently some, but not when you've, well, not when you're hearing this, <laughs> recommended a humorous clip that looked at the Department of Education as one of the characters in that show versus teachers and sort of this back and forth that was very humorous. And so Bonnie Powers sent to me a wonderful video that was put together by the cast of Schitt's Creek. I believe that it was possibly that it was a teacher's day but it doesn't necessarily tie to a specific day, but it's really just them celebrating teachers and professors. And if you watch the show, you've got to go to the show notes and you've got to watch it because it's just so much fun. I don't want to give too much away, but all the characters that you've come to know and love are there. And they also do a musical number, which is just so much fun. And there's a special musical guest that shows up. So thank you so much to Bonnie Powers for reaching out. I got it this morning and you just totally brightened my entire day. It started out right just with getting to see that. So I always love when people share things. And speaking of which, Bonnie mentioned that she had a wakelet. And a wakelet is a set of bookmarks that are done in kind of a visual way. And I want to recommend that you go over and check out Bonnie Powers' wakelet that she has from the Antioch University Academic Technology Support Services Department. There's a lot of really good resources in there for our teaching So those are my recommendations. And Mays, I'll pass it over to you for whatever you'd like to recommend. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So the first recommendation I have, it is uh, on being. It is an interview with Krista Tippett with the late Irish poet, philosopher, theologian, John O'Donohue. And the title of the interview is The Inner Landscape of Beauty. That interview, I must have listened to it right now, I don't know, 20, over 20 times. And in it, he talks about the pedagogy of interiority. And what does it mean? I mean, he talks about beauty and our sense of beauty. But in it, he talks about what does it mean to cultivate the home within for students where they're able to see their own beauty reflected around them. So I highly recommend that one. That one is just timeless for me. Oh, it sounds amazing. I love On Being. I love Mm -hmm. a lot of podcasts. I just can't listen to them all anymore. (laughs) With the commute time cut off, there has not been a space in time that I have managed to insert as much podcasting listening as I like to do. So I'm so looking forward to listening to that. Thank you for that gift. Yes. And I also want to recommend a speech that Dr. King gave to a high school, and it's called, What is Your Life's Blueprint? And in the speech, he talks about the concept of somebody-ness. 
And he tells the student, it doesn't matter what you do, do it with pride. And so I give this exercise actually to my students. I don't show them who wrote the speech and I ask them, please don't go Google it and just write about it. And then I, you know, I have this activity, who do you think wrote this speech? And they love it. They, they connect with it instantly because they see the struggle in the students that he was speaking to. And his, again, his advice is timeless. Mm, that sounds like a wonderful speech and also one that would apply to the class that I'm teaching. So I'm, I might be a, you might have yeah. just given me another great asset to add to that class in future iterations. Yeah, that's so great. My last recommendation, it's uh, the show Rami. Mm. So good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So I, I mean, the, the show is witty and you, you're, you're crying in one scene and you're laughing in another scene. And he takes these really difficult concepts that I think, or it's been my experience that the middle or, or the Muslim community have struggled with and he humanizes them. So one episode in particular where we get to see the behind the scene life of his uncle and the uncle is sitting outside eating the cake and crying. That episode I think will stay with me forever because it just humanized the struggle of people who are, let alone the community doesn't accept them. They are having a hard time accepting themselves. Yeah, that yeah. episode and that character in particular, it just was so incredibly powerful. And then to be thinking back to my own family and some intergenerational stuff with regard to what I would most loosely try to describe as toxic masculinity. You know, you're not allowed to cry if you're a boy or a man, you know, all of this stuff. And it makes me so grateful for my husband because somehow he managed to get out of everything in life and realize that it is quite normal and beautiful to be able to cry as a man, awesome. <laughs> as a person, you know, just, yeah. And then to know that our son won't likely have, I mean, I say won't likely, but then of course it's bigger than our, just our family. You know, our society mm -hmm. really has still continued to try to tell people what amount of emotion is acceptable to bring um, based on one's gender identity. Yeah. that Oh, that was such a powerful one. Yeah, such mm -hmm. a powerful one. Oh, my goodness. Well, you have so many good recommendations for us. And Maze, I'm so glad to be connected with you. And I hope this is just the beginning because I really have learned already in just such a short time so much from getting to study some of what you've written and some of your videos. I will be linking to a lot of it in the show notes, too. So people, if they'd like to learn more, can go because you've got a lot of great resources out there for us. Thank you so much. I'm very grateful for your time and your stories and your humanity. I'm so thankful to Dr. Ahmad for joining me on today's episode. Maze, it was just a pleasure getting to know you both during the episode and outside of it. And I'm so glad to be connected with you. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you would like to receive the show notes for today's episode, they may very well be already in your podcast player. But if you'd like to access them, you can head over to teachinginhighered.com slash 335. You also can sign up for the semi-regular, I say with a little hesitation, uh, update on teaching in higher ed with the show notes of a recent episode and an article written on teaching or productivity written by me. So you can sign up at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. 
Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.